This is the sidebar for the week of October 20th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. One of the reasons that the Korean War is described as the Forgotten War is because um, there was no sort of patriotic thump when the war was over. We could not feel proud of ourselves as we did after World War II when we beat the Nazis and, uh, and, and stopped Imperial Japan. We fought to a draw. This week, author and journalist Blaine Harden joins us to discuss how the Korean Peninsula continues to be impacted by a war fought more than 50 years ago. It created the DMZ at the 38th parallel and tensions for every U.S. president since Harry Truman. Blaine Harden, author and journalist, your newest book, King of Spies, which is about what? It's about Donald Nichols, spy master in Korea for 11 years, uh, who was critical to the Americans not losing the Korean War and who was lost to history. And one of the reasons was after he served for 11 years, the Air Force secretly took him away and gave him electroshock and threw him out of the Air Force. I want to come back to the book and his story, but let's go back to 1949-1950 and our entry into the Korean War. What was it all about? Well, the United States divided the Korean Peninsula in 1945. They drew a line along the 38th parallel. Uh, and the line was drawn in the White House late one August night by two colonels because the Truman administration was nervous that Stalin's Soviet army, which was in Manchuria, would take the entire Korean Peninsula. So hopefully they drew this line saying, well, the Russians could have the top and we could take the bottom. And that's what happened. And so as we go back to that time period, the 38th parallel, again, it was just uh, a, a random selection down the middle of Korea? It split the peninsula in half. We had just finished World War II. Why was there an appetite to invade Korea? Uh, an appetite to invade Militarily. Korea? By? By the U.S. Oh, well, there wasn't. Um, what had happened was that the Japanese had controlled the Korean Peninsula. They were about to lose. Um, in fact, they, were, they had lost the war. And they were going to be pushed away. So there'd be a vacuum there. And uh, this was just the very beginnings of, of Cold War antipathies between uh, the Soviet Union and the United States. And the U.S. military realized that Stalin's Soviet army would probably take the whole peninsula. Um, so they divided it as a way of making uh, sure that the Americans had a toehold on this place. American interest in Korea was very tangential. We had no big economic interest there, and we only had, had missionaries on the Korean Peninsula. That was our only involvement. Uh, but the Russians brought in uh, about 150,000 troops, and soon we had nearly 100,000 troops on the southern side of the, of the border. What role did China play in all of this? At that time, it played no role. Um, what happened was that after the peninsula was divided, uh, two puppet states were created, the Soviet puppet state, and their puppet was Kim Il-sung, uh, the great leader, the grandfather of Kim Jong-un, the man who is now threatening the United States with missiles and, long and nukes. Um, in the southern uh, part, South Korea, our puppet state, um, Sigmund Rhee was installed. 
a, a 70-year-old man who had a Ph.D. from Princeton and was just as eager to take the North militarily as Kim Il-sung was to take the South militarily. So you had two very aggressive, belligerent puppets um, sort of dressed up in the ideological window dressing of their superpower masters eager to go to war. If you go back a few years, of course, we had defeated Nazism in 1945 only to see the rise of communism. Was President Truman worried about being soft on communism? Was that a factor in all of this? It was. Um, but the United States in South Korea dropped the ball militarily after we had nearly 100,000 troops on the Korean Peninsula from 1945 till about 1948. The U.S. was was retracting its military from the from the world and trying to save money. MacArthur was uh, uh, resuscitating Japan, and part of his budget was spent on those troops that were based in Korea, a place that he had no interest in. So the army decided that it would be a good idea to remove virtually all the military troops from South Korea. Um, at the same time that Stalin was arming the North Korean army with tanks, uh, military aircraft, and artillery. So there was a real military imbalance by 1950 when the invasion happened. And during that time period, Blaine Harden, did you have a sense of the relationship, or do you have a sense of the relationship between General MacArthur and President Truman? It was tense, to say the least. Uh, MacArthur did not want to go back to Washington to talk to Truman. MacArthur was planning to run for president as a Republican. Truman really, really hated MacArthur. He said as much. He re I think he referred to him as Mr. Prima Donna. What about the UN? Because that agency, that organization was in its infancy, but did the UN play any role in this? It did. After the uh, invasion that started the war in June of 1950, um, the the U.S. government pushed the U.N. to authorize the use of force to stop the invasion. But it was led by the United States. The United States fought that war. In, they fought the air war exclusively uh, to most extent. It was, it was an American operation with South Korean soldiers doing a lot of the dying. When President Truman announced troops to North Korea, to Korea, to the peninsula, what did he tell the American people? What was the argument? What was the mission? What was the goal? Well, he said this aggression cannot stand. Um, he said that uh, there was, uh, at the time, a, a lot of worry about communists in the State Department. Uh, the McCarthyism was beginning. Um, there was, uh, this was the dawn of the Cold War, and this was seen as the, the beginning of the, the domino theory. Um, and also, I think it was the Americans were shocked. Uh, the White House was shocked by this invasion. They didn't see it coming. In my book, I write about how uh, there were many, many, many intelligence reports saying that, in fact, the invasion was imminent. But they were downplayed by General MacArthur's chief of intelligence, a guy named Charles Willoughby, uh, who assured uh, the White House that he didn't think an invasion would happen in 1950. Um, in fact, he, Willoughby was so sure that he was right that he tried to throw uh, the hero of my book out of Korea 
for giving him information that he did not want. MacArthur was then entering his eighth decade of magnificence as a five-star general. He was the most important general in the U.S. Army, and he had sort of a state, uh, attained a, uh, a position where he didn't like to be told what he didn't already know. And Willoughby, his chief of intelligence, was an expert in giving MacArthur a warm bath in his preconceptions. And for that reason, um, the U.S. military completely missed the many, many, many signs that an invasion was coming. This infuriated Truman, who fired his, the head of his CIA, ultimately fired MacArthur, and General Willoughby spent much of the rest of his life explaining his failure. So I want to go back, because I know we're dealing with the basics. Walk us through the specifics, the mechanics of the invasion. Where did it begin, and how did the troops move? It began in Moscow. Uh, Kim Il-sung made three secret trips to Moscow in 1948-49 and early 1950, begging Stalin for permission to invade the South. Uh, he needed arms, he needed uh, tanks, he needed planes, uh, and he also wanted the approval of uh, Stalin uh, and the rest of the communist world. Um, in those conversations, the transcripts of which have now been found in the Soviet ar archives, the Russian archives, and uh, exploited by scholars, uh, in one of the conversations, Kim Il-sung promised Stalin that the war would take just three days and that he would be met by Garland's and the South Korean would welcome a united Korea under his rule. The war's still going on. It is indeed, and, and I want to go back because as you look at this part of the world, why was it so important to Stalin? Why was this uh, so pivotal to the communists? It wasn't pivotal to Stalin. Uh, this was a small, poor place in a corner of the world that was not part of the strategic interests of either the United States or the Soviet Union. But Stalin liked the idea of bleeding the U.S. Treasury, killing some U.S. soldiers, and embarrassing the Americans on the national stage. Why? Simply because he uh, had become an enemy of the United States. And also, Stalin by then was an old man who'd become rather rigid in his thinking. Um, and he just liked the idea of being able to have a deniable war that was draining the budget of the United States. And he, he told Kim Il-sung, you can go ahead with your war, but make sure it looks as if the South Koreans started it. And yet, obviously, it was a necessary alliance, but we were allies in World War II. That's true. And, and, but that, that, that was starting to fall apart uh, as World War II came to an end. We look at South Korea today. It is a key trading partner. It has a robust economy, a large manufacturing sector. You look at North Korea, and the pictures tell the story about what it's like in North Korea. But what was the Korean Peninsula like in the 1950s? What was its economy like? What was its population like? Do you know? Interestingly, um, on the Korean Peninsula, North Korea did much better in terms of uh, having a tranquil political uh, state, uh, both before the war and then after. Kim Il-sung uh, managed to organize a political uh, um, 
there, there was a there was a large measure of political harmony in North Korea, and those who weren't part of it were jailed or killed. In South Korea, it was a big mess. There was a huge civil war inside South Korea, uh, often called the Invisible War, that preceded the Forgotten War, and that war was was fought by Sigmund Rhee and his supporters, many of whom were landowners who'd collaborated with the Japanese, against a seething mass of poor South Koreans who had suffered under colonial Japan rule and who wanted property and wanted a measure of social justice. And they felt they weren't getting it from Sigmund Rhee. Uh, and so they, 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 many of them supported the communist side, and a, a very bloody civil war ensued uh, that cost the lives of hun- at least 100,000 people. Civil war, not an international war? Is that how you describe it? Yeah, this was a civil war. And the United States government, uh, uh, the military, U.S. intelligence, including the spy who's the subject of my book, came down on the side of Sigmund Rhee. And were, uh, they trained these police who ended up massacring uh, civilians, uh, and they attended torture sessions. I found a picture of the hero of my book standing on the roof of the South Korean Army headquarters in Seoul beside a severed head, someone who had been a participant on the other side in the Civil War. And we should point out in your book there are some rather graphic pictures. There were large-scale massacres that occurred uh, that were organized and carried out by Sigmund Rhee's people. The Americans were present during these massacres, they filed, some of them filed contemporaneous reports that were sent to the State Department and the the CIA about what was going on with pictures. Those reports were suppressed. The official U.S. Army history of the Korean War still says that this massacre at Taejon that I'm referring to, in which 7,000 people were killed over a weekend, was carried out by North Korean troops, even though it's been clear for 40 or well, it's been clear since a week after the the massacre itself that the US knew they were carried out by South Koreans. The book is titled King of Spies: The Dark Reign of America's Spymaster in Korea. What was happening here on the home front? How were Americans viewing this conflict in Korea? They were ignorant of Korea by and large until the invasion happened. And then there was a as there often is in the United States, a real patriotic reaction to what the president said. Um, President Truman told his secretary of state that we've got to stop the sons of bitches. And that roughly sums up the reaction of Congress and the American public in the early months of the fight. What was the fight like? And I'm asking specifically the bombings, the missions, the operations. What did we see? What did U.S. troops see? What type of combat? The first three months of the war were an unmitigated disaster for the United States. Because? Because there were only 500 American soldiers in the country when the invasion occurred. And uh, the North Koreans came in with battle tanks that could not be stopped. They, they sliced through virtually the entire southern part of the Korean Peninsula and within a couple months had pushed the Americans all the way down to a corner of the Korean Peninsula, the southern tip called the Pusan Perimeter, uh, where the Americans uh, decided that they would fight or die. 
General Ridgway replaces General MacArthur. How significant was that, and how did that impact the war? The key thing that Ridgway did uh, when when MacArthur was fired in 1951 and Ridgway came in, Ridgway accepted what the United States policy was towards the Korean Peninsula. In other words, he accepted a divided Korea. So he fought the Chinese who had come into the war at that point back to the 38th parallel. He did not presume to want to take the whole peninsula and erase North Korea as MacArthur had. Your own brother died in the Vietnam War that happened uh, a decade after the Korean War. And I'm wondering, were there lessons learned or mistakes made from the Korean War that were also the same mistakes in Vietnam? Well, one of the lessons that the U.S. Air Force thought it learned in Korea was that carpet bombing worked very well. Um, In the Korean War, because the Americans started off so slowly and were on the ground, they suffered so much, um, the, the Americans were looking for their comparative advantage. And their comparative advantage very quickly, within just a few weeks after the start of the war, was air power. They controlled the skies. So they brought in big B-29s, super fortresses, uh, which were from World War II. We had lots of those aircraft. We had lots of pilots. We had lots of bombs. And we had lots of napalm. And we systematically uh, destroyed nearly every city in North Korea. Um, and and that was, that was the... Uh, um, the early response of, of the U.S. government in the war. Who won the war? No one won the war. And one of the reasons that the Korean War is described as the Forgotten War is because um, there was no sort of patriotic thump when the war was over. We could not feel proud of ourselves as we did after World War II when we beat the Nazis and, uh, and, and stopped Imperial Japan. We fought to a draw. And to get that draw, we sacrificed 32,000 GIs in a very short time. The, 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 uh, the pace of death in Korea was much faster than it ever was in Vietnam. Uh, it was a much shorter war, and almost most of the deaths in Korea happened in the first year. And yet the Kim family takes control in North Korea and maintains that control today. Yeah, and one of the reasons that the Kim family has been successful uh, well, there are several reasons. The first and most important reasons that they have sustained a level of cruelty towards their own people that's probably unprecedented. Uh, this totalitarian state now has been around for seven decades, more than twice as long as any other, any similar kind of state, Stalin, Mao, and Brogia and Albania. None have lasted as long. And so the Kim family is disciplined, it's cruel, but it also has a fact-based narrative that gives it a measure of legitimacy. And that narrative is that uh, during the Korean War, the Americans came with bombs and fire and death. And they killed your grandma or your great-grandma now. And f- now we can protect you uh, against the Americans, but the cost of our protection the cost of our vigilance will be endless repression. Um, not everybody in North Korea buys that, but it, it is the measure of legitimacy that helps to keep the state together. Have you been to the DMZ or to North Korea? 
I've been to North Korea with the New York Philharmonic uh, in, in 2008 for uh, a sort of a Potemkin village visit to uh, a city full of light and food. Um, and about four or five hours after we left in, in a big 747, uh, many of the lights in Pyongyang were turned off. And I've been to the DMZ. What's the DMZ like? Well, it's, it's, it's a chilly, sort of theatrical place where you can see the rooms where the, the, uh, the um, armistice was negotiated that, that stopped the, the fighting uh, in the Korean War. Uh, on one side is the, the North Korean military, and the other side is the South Korean and American military. And they look at each other across this border. Uh, it has been a place of violence. It's still a place of tension. How did the war end in terms of, was there an agreement? Did U.S. troops just leave? How did that all come about? Well, the war settled down into uh, sort of a trench warfare, rather reminiscent of World War I, um, in about a year. Uh, there was still a good bit of killing. There was still an air war going on. The first uh, all-jet air war was conducted between the United States uh, pilots flying saber jets and Russian pilots who pretended to be Chinese and they were flying MiGs. So that was going on. Um, but at the um, when the war ended, uh, um, there was a stalemate. Everybody, all the participants wanted to stop fighting except for the Soviet Union. But so the Soviet Union finally threw in the towel, and it did so not with a decision, but with a death. Stalin died. And when he died in the spring of 1953, there was nobody in a position of power who wanted to continue the war. And negotiations for a peace treaty, for an armistice, uh, began within weeks. I want to add a pop culture question to all of this because many Americans grew up watching MASH. It went on CBS in 1972. It ended 11 years later, ironically, more than three times as long as the Korean War. But I wonder what impact, because you watch those programs, what impact that had to the generation that might have lived through the Korean conflict or needed to learn more about what this war was all about. I think the great irony of, of MASH was that uh, people thought it was about Vietnam. The, uh, the mentality, the irreverence of the people, of the doctors who lived in the swamp, the, um, the uh, sort of free thinking, that was more of a Vietnam mentality than Korea. Um, the book emerged from the war, but the TV show was really about Vietnam. So let's go back to your book and the story of Donald Nichols, because an incredible rise, a huge influence in Korea, and then a tragic ending. Yeah. Donald Nichols was um, uh, a spymaster who was incredibly important to the Americans not losing the war, as I said. But he's been lost to history. I only found out about him because I did a book about a North Korean fighter pilot who defected in 1953. And when he landed at a U.S. Air Force base in Seoul and gave his MiG to the Americans, he said, take me to your leader. And they took him to Donald Nichols. Um, and as the fighter pilot described it in, in the interviews for my previous book, he said, here was this American, six foot two, 260 pounds, drank about a case of Coca-Cola a day, and just stuffed his face with chocolate bars all the time. 
But he knew the inner workings of the North Korean Air Force. He knew the inner workings of the North Korean government. He was familiar with all of the power brokers around Kim Il-sung, which was an astonishing level of sophisticated information. He also spoke some Korean. Um, The fighter pilot told me that he had never met an American like Donald Nichols. And at this point, I'd been writing and researching on uh, Korea and the Korean War era for about six years, and I'd never heard of him. So I went back and looked in the history books, and he was not in the history books. So I got interested, and then I spent the past three years finding his military service record, finding uh, classified files and getting them declassified from the Air Force and from the National Archives, and talking to the men who fought with him on the Korean side, on the South Korean side, and in the United States, and all of his relatives. And I found out a story that is, even to me now, is, is just incredible. He, um, for example, he, when he came, finally came home, uh, he brought home several hundred thousand dollars in cash, in bricks, that he kept in his brother's freezer in where South did, Florida. Where did he get that money? He stole it. He stole it. He had access to a huge amount of money because he was paying off thousands of agents to go into North Korea to find bomb targets. Um, and so he had access to this cash over many years. And I talked to his uh, South Korean uh, uh, peers in, in intelligence who said that he, he was trading in the black market and uh, it was clear that he was, he was misusing money. Was it easy or difficult to get information, to get the documents, to open the files on his story? It was very difficult, and I got the help of uh, a couple of uh, former Special Forces uh, colonels who knew the ins and outs of the American military bureaucracy and, and, uh, and helped me get access. Does he still have family alive? He does. And what do they know about him? They knew that he was spooky, uh, that he was... Uh, um, self-regarding in the extreme, and they didn't believe his stories about the past. The most interesting thing about Donald Nichols is he went to Korea when he was 23. No one else really wanted to go there in 1946. He arrived four years before the war started, and he developed a network of contacts that was unique and uniquely uh, spread out. But his most important contact was Sigmund Rhee, the American uh, the American puppet who became uh, the president of South Korea. Sigmund Rhee was 71 at this time. He had a Ph.D. in international history from Princeton. He was the most educated South Korean in the world. Donald Nichols was 23 and a seventh-grade dropout, but somehow they found favor in each other's eyes because they, they passed information back and forth. Uh, by knowing uh, Sigmund Rhee, Donald Nichols became an important spy in the eyes of the U.S. military establishment. And by knowing Donald Nichols, Sigmund Rhee could pass information that would support his efforts to try to get enough uh, troops and guns to fight against North Korea. And their relationship lasted for 11 years. I found uh, um, Rhee's appointment calendar showed that he would meet with his defense minister for an hour, he'd meet with Donald Nichols for an hour and a half, and then he'd meet with his, his foreign minister. Nichols was a key player in the policies of South Korea for 11 years secretly. An almost Shakespearean end to Donald Nichols. What's the rest of the story? Well, what happened in 1957, which I did not know when I started working on this book, 
is that Air Force uh, officials came for him in the middle of the night. He had a secret base. He had his own secret army, and he, and he had secret rules that he could, by which he ran his, his agents. Anyhow, after, after 11 years, the Americans apparently decided that he was too close to Sigmund Rhee. The Americans came, put him in a straitjacket, and took him to a psych ward of a military hospital in Japan for a couple weeks. Then they transferred him to Eglin Air Force Base Military Hospital in the Florida uh, Panhandle, and they gave him months of electroshock. He told his relatives at the time that the Air Force was trying to destroy his memory. He was thrown out of the Air Force, and he became a non-person. He wandered around in America for the next 30 years. He became a pedophile, pedophile and a real estate investor in South Florida, and he told his uh, relatives that he'd become the living dead, a zombie ex-spy wandering in America. When did he die? He died in 1992 uh, in a uh, veterans hospital. He was basically locked up in the late 1980s for pedophilia. The book is titled King of Spies, The Dark Reign of America's Spymaster in Korea. Final question, Blaine Harden, as you look back at the Korean War, what are the lessons that we should learn and apply to the future? Well, for Americans who are upset and worried about the current uh, uh, crisis with North Korea, um, you know, I have no answers. Uh, the, 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 the rhetoric levels are off the charts on both sides uh, uh, with North Korea. But it's important to understand that we created a divided, that the United States created a divided Korean peninsula. And to understand the war and to understand the anger that persists in North Korea, it's, it's a very useful thing. To, to get your head around this crisis. And my book, and there are many books that explain this, um, but it, it's well worth their time to uh, invest a little energy to understand that the Korean Peninsula crisis was an American invention. You have done that for us today. Blaine Harden, veteran journalist and author, we thank you for your time here on C-SPAN and our podcast, The Sidebar. Thank you. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.